Hi Chewers, welcome to Digest with Chew Chews, a podcast exploring the influence of food on our soil, body and soul. From regenerative farming to table rituals, let us embark on an Epicurean journey and meet captivating guests who invite meaning and purpose from field to fork. My name is Lea Sednawi, gourmand at heart, and your host. I believe that chewing or living well is choosing. Let's find out how, together, get comfortable and happy listening. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nick Green, founder of the Green Butcher Butchery and Farm Shop. For some context, I discovered the Green Butcher while investigating regenerative farms and butchers as I was setting up Brunette Brisket, our sister brand. When I first met Nick at the shop to pick up my first order, all the rushing between meetings, he welcomed me with great enthusiasm and we shared the challenge of startup. So Nick went from city finance to a career conversion via the Cotswolds, diving into the health and wealth of our land. And in your words, Nick, there is an increasingly urgent job to be done. I think there's much to unpack here, so let's get started. Hi, Nick. Hi, Leah. Hi. Thank you for having me on. (laughs) I'm so thrilled. So let's get started with some background questions. I'm very curious before we dive in into the Green Butcher itself to know more about who you are, where you grew up, if you want to share with us where you're from, where you grew up. Sure. Yeah, my name's Nick Green. I was born in North London. I grew up in Hertfordshire and I had a career before this, which we'll get into in a minute. And I now live in Twickenham. I have a young family and my business is in Twickenham in southwest London. Great. From a career in finance to a conversion into agriculture and opening your own butchery, what was your life like in the city before? So yes, I'm 43 now. So I went to university at the normal age and studied mixed, which and I was, I was living on my family home was on the edge of London. So my natural, I got a natural sort of career path was to go into the city, and I worked at, I worked in the city for about 15 years until my mid late 30s, and then in my mid 30s started to look I guess a bit further ahead, a little bit towards the sort of next 10 years. I just decided I wanted to have a new challenge and see a bit of the open world and try and challenge myself to set up something and my passion which will come on to the detail of that is is in food and produce and the grassroots of how food is produced that was the sort of the seed and the catalyst for the career change my life in the city was i lived through a period i worked through a period of some of the sort of boom years of the sort of in the 90s and early and early noughties oh yeah sorry no, the early 2000 onwards basically and through a financial crash but it was uh, it ultimately is a corporate office job, and I just had a, an increasingly strong desire to, if you like, see what else might be <laughs> possible to set up my own venture, and that's that was really the catalyst. In terms of what triggered me to switch, it was just that although finance and economics has always interested me, and I still follow it, and I'm, I understand it, I didn't feel particularly, I was increasingly not that fulfilled or with actually the nature of the work and that sort of lifestyle. So I started to think about what else I could be good at, where else I could be useful. And it brought me back to my sort of passion, which is food. Amazing. It's a big one. And how was it received by your friends, family, community? Yeah, it's a good question. It was a bit of a, in some ways, it was a bit of a cliff edge, but we had our first child of us was, he's now nine. So I guess he was about 
one or two years old when I started to plan the transition away from that career. And then about four or five years ago, I took the plunge, if you like, and handed my notice in. And there was a plan, but how was it received? I guess I was so excited and motivated and energized by the prospect of really a whole sort of new chapter of my life that I was very confident that it would work out. Has it worked out? Well, we're, yeah, it's, it's obviously now we're now in the trenches and it's tough, but I was, my family are very supportive and we, we live in Twickenham and we, we were building a young family and it was brave to, to, to give up, give it up. But I think we'll find out, won't we, if it was a <laughs> the right decision. How long has it been now since you've set up the Green Butcher? The Green Butcher was set up three years ago. We've only had premises in Twickenham for about two and a half years now. You've always loved food. So tell me a bit about that connection to food growing up. Yeah. So again, when I was in mid-late 30s thinking about what my what I know what another career might look like or what a change of direction would look like, you think, what am I where what am I really motivating? What are the things that I would get really excited about to get up every morning and really food food at the grassroots level and it genuinely does go back to my family life i'm the oldest of four children and my my mum was completely devoted to, to homemaking and raising us as children and she did every single evening we had a family dinner at six o'clock it was unwavering every single night of the week but food and home cooking we're a british family we haven't got any great exotic or ethnic roots or anything but home cooking and wholesome food was absolutely central and as We started when I was of an age where I could start to remember things like holidays. And we're only talking holidays in the UK and in Scotland and Wales and the Southwest and then camping in Brittany and northern France and maybe Spain. I can remember crystal clear the first time in on the west coast of Scotland where I ate scallops or longestine or being going to Brittany and Normandy and eating mussels, cheese and charcuterie. And then it all sounds very fish focused, I realise, but some of those flavours, they're just they're mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. And we... And my mum and dad, was, they were happy to let us try those things. And maybe we, and even though maybe the prawns on the menu might have been a more expensive option. But if we, they said, my dad always said, if you're going to eat it, if you're going to order it, as long as you eat it, it's absolutely fine. So we did get to try a lot of different produce and different flavours in, 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 in different regions of UK and sort of France. And it was just fascinating. It was just my curiosity was how why does this, why does, we're talking about in the 80s when I was growing up, why does cheese... Obviously, UK farmhouse cheese has undergone a huge revolution since. Cheese in France at that time tasted a lot better in the UK. And why is that? And so it was a curiosity, really. So when I was thinking about a career change five, six years ago, really, I thought food is where my motivating was my motivating sort of energy. But I was there was a degree of humility because I'm not a farmer. I'm not a butcher. I'm not a chef. And I'm not a food qualified science nutritionist or anything. So... With a degree of humility, I think I thought I felt like I needed to have a I needed to have a grounding, a baseline of, of knowledge that would give me some credibility and obviously exposed me to the realities of food and farming. So I enrolled on a part-time postgraduate diploma in agriculture at Royal Agriculture University in the Cotswolds. It's a one-year course, part-time attendance. And I actually did that while I was still seeing out the last year of my previous job. I'd love to know which course you're enrolled in. Yeah. And- The learnings, challenges that you met there. Yeah, I went into it with a completely, or I started to research it with a completely open mind. I have no idea what was out there. Geographically, I was in living in southwest London, so you had the University in the Cotswolds. You had places like Harper Adams, a bit further afield, sort of Sheer Way, Hereford Way, a couple of colleges down the sort of south of England, and it was just looking at what courses. And it was at the time when 
five, six years ago, things like we'll come onto subjects like regenerative agriculture and stuff that hadn't really that hadn't really hit that hadn't really hit the mainstream or the context yet. It was more it was a sort of start of what they were calling precision agriculture with a lot of robotics and drones and high tech agriculture, and that wasn't that interesting to me initially. But the course that I enrolled on in the Cotswolds at Royal Agricultural College is I say is a postgraduate diploma, but it's taught in a very conventional style, which means you spend the bulk of your academic learning there being taught about conventional farming practices, which is not, again, I didn't have a preconceived idea about that, but it wasn't until you go and do farm farm visits as part of your course. And then we had a study tour at the end of course, where we traveled up to Yorkshire and that, and the whole of Yorkshire really, and saw a lot of different styles and approaches to agriculture not just livestock and meat arable and everything and you see the breadth of approaches and some are in very intensive and some are very industrial and some are very natural and environmentally focused and then it really gets your sort of brain <laughs> gets, you, really gets you thinking and gets your brain in curve and i can remember the exact farm that we visited so there was a lecturer at the college his name was john t Brunyi. he was at the time i believe uh, he was heavily he was a director of the pasture for life which is a grassroots farming movement which we will come on to because it's central to everything we do and he was a very energetic quite charismatic guy and he started talking about again the, what they call you know, pasture-based progressive organic it wasn't even regenerative wasn't even a word that was used at that point but and then he had as he has his own farm near in the Cotswolds half an hour from the college so we went up there as part you know, as one of many little farm visits half day away you know, half day sort of site field trips and you go on to his farm and it was, I can't remember exactly what time of year, it was probably like early spring. And his huge farm, I think it was about 120 acres or something, and he only had 20 or 25 pure breed Hereford beef cattle. But they were standing in effectively wildflower meadows. So you're going onto this farm, it's, it's picturesquely beautiful, and you have these very handsome Hereford cattle, white and brown patch of cattle, standing in these long grasses and flowers, and it was almost up, almost up to their shoulder. And he's saying, this is beef produced 100% from grass. And because I'm coming to this with a completely blank canvas, I have no preconceptions, I'm not from a farming family, I have no... And it just was like, this makes perfect sense. Like, you can just produce... You could see how beautiful it was, and he was talking about how we direct selling it, and then we obviously got to see some of the meat and stuff. It just was like, this is what... It, this just seems to make sense. This just seems to be what it's about. And he's had sheep there as well. So he's you know, producing lamb and, and mutton, again, from the same a similar system. And then you start talking about the rotation of the livestock and how it all fits together. And it just made perfect sense. And I, so I was like, okay, I think this is where I hang my hat. This is where I get involved because this is just incredible. Amazing. Did farms like this stand out? or appear more rebellious or different in comparison to standard industrial agriculture? Yeah, again, did I even know what standard industrial agriculture was mm. at that point? We visited, again, some other, a whole breadth, a whole wide scope of different farms, both in and around the Cotswold area where we study, and then we went to Yorkshire on the study tour. So we saw some industrial, what they call intensive agricultural systems. And yeah, yeah they're not very appealing and they can, they're often quite ugly and you think this isn't a straight you understand why people do that and why farmers have gone down that route and it's not again it's not a judgment on them particularly but you could yes it was important to see the con it was important you have to have, you, you have to be able to see 
things in context and see the range of how things are done before you can say that's where but pasture for like jonty's farm was small and he only was producing less than 30 beef cattle a year or something that's that small so again i wasn't under the impression that was like a commercially that everyone could do it that way but that what led me on to actually meeting pasture for life as an organization because they are based they were based then on the campus at the university they had a small office there and russ was doing his good work out of that site so i met them which then opens up networks and contacts into potentially other farms and then that's where the whole that's where the whole groundswell of, of drive that's where it all started great would you be able to familiarize us with the different labels and processes we hear so much regenerative farming is almost a trendy word now it's all over the place for meat production farming but also fruits vegetables other things so why is it so prominent now what are the different labels pasture fed finished organic i see it a lot on your website yeah regenerative farming as a concept and as you say as a trend has seems to have captured the imagination of people like nothing else has for at least probably five or ten years it's being used a lot i wouldn't say the word has become meaningless or hollowed yet it is important to different it is important to be specific about what these things mean and every january i go to a uh, an incredible event in Oxford called the Oxford Real Farming Conference. So I was there four weeks ago. It gets, it's a bigger and bigger event every year. And it's, it's, a, it's a gathering of people who are involved in this side of agriculture. It's lots of very high profile speakers and there's seminars. It's an educational it's knowledge exchange. It's educational. And again, regenerative farming this year was big on the agenda. And I've, I was at a seminar that was featured uh, the owner of Riverford, who's Scar Watson. So a Wicked Leaks, which is the Riverford sort of online magazine newsletter thing which is now i'd say almost industry leading in its sort of insight and i just pulled up a, a newsletter that guy wrote this early this morning where he's basically saying organic so if we focus first of all on organic farming and let's just let's take it down to let's talk about organic meats because that's what or dairy that's because that's what obviously we're involved with there is a very specific clean clear-cut set of standards objective standards that are it's a certification so there's two you know two main certifiers in the uk what soil association by far the biggest and then you have ng organic farmers and growers who, who certify us we're certified for them because they have close ties to pasture for life so organics in, in, in its simplest terms in terms of meat and dairy farming is that you're not using any chemicals on your land so there's no fertilizers or pesticides or herbicides or chemical sprays used at all on any land and that the antibiotic usage on the animals is very minimal, only to treat problems, not as a preventative measure. And in, in a lot of cases, and certainly the farms we work with, the antibiotic usage is actually zero. So it's that's it's, it, go, it obviously gets more complex than that. But effectively, that is the that is what organic farming means. Pasture fed or pasture finished farming, which is where the pasture for life certification comes in is again an independently audited and credible certification that ruminant livestock so ruminants are cattle cows and sheep and now goats as well have been reared 100 percent on pasture or preserved pasture forage with silage and never fed any grains or cereals or soya or any synthetic feeds so that's what pasture for life is and pasture fed which so you can be pasture fed and organic of course you can be pasture fed without being organic, which means you could still fertilize your grass to grow it. But about certainly 
you know, about two thirds of all the farms that are certified pasture for life in the UK. And we're up to about 100 farms now, but we're not, we're still in terms of the bigger picture of UK agriculture, it's less than half of 1% of a farms farm this way. But two thirds of those farms are organic and pasture for life, pasture fed, which is what we represent here. We only handle and we only sell organic and 100% grass fed, pasture fed red meat. So regenerative agriculture is a bit more broad brush and certainly the principles are absolutely relevant and in highly important in terms of the climate situation with climate change in terms of biodiversity loss and soil structure degradation of soil fertility carbon capture in soils that's absolutely central but it hasn't really been defined yet and as there's no certification that i'm aware of and but government policy agricultural policy is seeming to be supporting of these principles and they talk about public money for public goods but basically regenerative farming again if you're looking for a simple definition it's basically farming in a way that doesn't degrade or doesn't extract from your ecosystem of your farm so you're building soil health and soil fertility by building organic matter in the soil whether that's from maybe from livestock grazing and manuring from growing species of plants that build soil structure that fix nitrogen that improve the fertility and the health of your soil because healthy soils can lock carbon they can sequester carbon so again i'm not a scientist on this i'm not a technical agricultural advisor or anything like this it's, this is just my sort of understanding but i i come at this as a regular sort of consumer and a person like all of our customers as well so i try to understand this in sort of their terms as well you know as a, as a regular urban i'm an urban dweller but it's basically about it's about soil health and soil structure and carbon capture and grazing livestock we believe is, is central to that and it's then about improving the biodiversity and the health of the ecosystem on your farm and the evidence is there on the farms that we work with now they're seeing the they're seeing wild bird collect or insects or various vertebrates species and dung beetles and all this stuff is starting to regenerate on their farm and that's obviously an indication of the health of the ecosystem of the farm so it's a very it's a fascinating topic it's got a lot of people very excited and that's why events like Oxford Real Farming in January and there's an event in the summer called Groundswell which is this incredible event on a farm in Hertfordshire with the Cherry family where again it's a it's all supporting this sort of progressive farming movement around regenerative agriculture. Great. Thank you. So good soil, happy cattle. Tell us about the Green Butcher. <laughs> We're getting there. Yeah. So when I met Pasture for Life as an organization in Sirencester at Cotswolds four or five years ago, I was so inspired by the farms that I'd been onto that are farming this way and the people I've met and the positivity and the sort of energy behind the whole thing. I was almost, almost virtually, you know, Russ, Russ Carrington, who was then the sort of general manager of PFLA, I said to him, look, Basically, I'm keen to get involved. I'm on the edge of London. I've got I've got the motivation and the energy, and I've got I want to basically if you've got any projects almost that need. And I could see clearly that the big blockage and the big struggle. It still is a struggle for Pasture for Life as an organisation because they are a grassroots farming movement. They are effectively a charity organisation with only two two or three employees. They're not a, they're not. A commercial organization and they haven't really got the resources or the means to be a commercial organization what i could quickly identify was you had this 
movement of farms, some of whom were able to sell their produce, their amazing produce, like John's, he was a small sort of output of meat. So he was able to, he was very good at marketing it in his local area of the Cotswolds and selling it directly to people, which is the best way. That's the, so it's the, if you can, that's, that has to be the best way. You're selling it off the farm. It was perfect. But, but when you start looking at some bigger farms and some other farmers, farmers who have different skill sets and some of the farmers we work with, some of them are absolute experts and leading mavericks, pioneers in what they do on the farm, but they're not suited to marketing a website and selling meat into their local market. So I could quickly see that there was a need and it would be valuable if someone started to try and build a supply chain, basically just start creating a market or a route to market for some of this for this produce so i said to russ at the pfl what's 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 a pressing need and he said we've got, we've got a group of dairy farmers who have all sat around the table a couple of times and talked about whether they could start telling the story and marketing dairy veal so again it's a huge ethical story we started off basically taking on a project that was a, working with some dairy farms who see again it's a huge ethical story in dairy isn't it? it's a, a bull calf, a male calf is born on a dairy farm what happens to a male bull calf because they're not going to be able to give milk to the dairy farm so they can be reared on for beef but in a lot of cases in the uk and everywhere the, the story is on you know that traditionally and historically veal has is a lot of negative preconception there's a lot of awful stories but there is a again there is a huge effort now across the uk actually even with the bigger supermarkets and the bigger milk cooperatives to ensure that male calves born on a dairy farm are not euthanized at birth they're not just devalued in that way they're not sold or shipped abroad that's actually been illegal in, in england for a while but it's now illegal in, France, in scotland but again there's been plenty of documentaries on tv and stuff about what happens to male calves in the dairy and, and so we started addressing it because the actual meat the actual quality of the veal meat if you like it's coming from a pasture for life farm and these are also organic guys was such a high quality potentially such a high quality veal meat, both in terms of eating quality and nutrition, that it just, again, it was a complete waste to have it just devalued in a way that and also was very undignified and ethically very difficult to, to accept. So I basically, I left the city and I basically, in simple terms, we sat with two or three farms and the two main farms that we still work with closely to this day, which is Horton House Farm in Wiltshire, which is the Johnny and Rachel Ryder, the Ryder family, who are, we can come on to them, but again, complete Mavericks pioneers. They pioneered the pasture for like dairy standards, both in milk and the welfare of dairy animals. And the other farm who have now got quite, have now got a high profile of their own, higher profile than us is Ethical Dairy in Southwest, in Dumfries and Galloway in Southwest Scotland. So David and Wilma Finley, who have been on a sort of 10 year journey to prove that it's possible to run a dairy farm where you keep the dairy calves with the cows to suckle naturally while also milking the cows once a day. So look at the ethical dairy because they, you know, they've been on, they've got a big profile now. They've been on <laughs> national television and radio and BBC and they've, and they are proving that dairy farming is possible this way. So my job initially was to get into London. We didn't have a butchery, they didn't have premises or anything. So get into London, find some customers and see if we can start basically building a route to market for this dairy veal so i was proud and i knew we had a great product and a great story so i knew the sort of restaurants in london or I, I felt like i had a good idea of the sort of chefs and restaurants that might be open to it so we went straight into restaurants like saint john we still deal with today and 
chefs who would appreciate the story and would use the veal product because veal is a difficult sell to households and to, to consumers directly. I started renting a refrigerated van once a week, driving down to the farm and driving to the abattoir and taking these carcasses of meat in, directly into London and just to get the wheels, get it going. So then we approached a, a, an online sort of home delivery business in London called Farm Drop, who some people will yeah, they know were of. great. Yes. So they were built again. They were set up for the right reasons. They they had the right beliefs and the right concept. And we supplied them with veal from the early stage. We had to produce a retail spec product, and so we did out the butchery for about a year to pasture. John Chapman, who runs a, a, you know, a brilliant pasture for life farm up in there, he has a little butchery facility that wasn't being used every day. So he very kindly let us rent the butchery for a day or two a week. We, borrowed his butcher and we started getting some product cut and packed for farm drop that way and distributed that way. So that again, got things moving. We then expanded a range with them, brought in regular beef and then lamb, etc. And then unfortunately, at Christmas of just December of last year of 2021, they went into administration and, and folded. But that was basically how we got the Green Butcher started. This is before we had premises into it, but it was based around dairy, dairy beef and dairy veal story. That was phase one, if you like, proving mm. you know, prove, proving the concept, getting some customers on board, getting the farmers to, you know, behind the project, and just get it going. And that was from the middle of, two, basically 2009, basically that's what we did in 2019, pre-COVID. And you see it more and more in restaurants as well, actually, um, serving ex-dairy cow meat. What's the stigma behind all that in a nutshell? There's plenty of discerning meat connoisseurs out there, and we're on the same agreement now that beef from dairy, in terms of the eating quality, in terms of the texture, the buttery, beefy flavour, I honestly think it's <clears throat> superior to, to you know conventional suckler beef. But veal has always been, and probably will always be, a restaurant, more of a restaurant meat, and a meat that was that's why it went it sold well on farm drops. Farm drop had a lot of European customers, a lot of French, Spanish, Italian, Middle mm -hmm. Eastern, North African customers who whose culture is to eat veal. It's a much more difficult sell into the average British customer. In terms of dairy beef and ex-dairy beef, it's, again, that's, it's, caught, it's become a real trend in the last few years. The Spanish have done a very good job of getting their systems to fatten these old, these ex-dairy cows. Again, they've also marketed it very well and put some very smart sort of designation of origin type PGO type stuff against it. It's their Basque beef or Galician beef and stuff like that. But the provenance of that isn't, necessary of anything to even but it's, it's comparable really to something like pasture for life so we all of our beef now 95 percent of all beef we handle and sell comes from the dairy farms which means it's either male calves that could have gone for veal but we decided to grow them on longer so they are 18 months old or two years old two and a half years old and then they are they are beef but they are from a dairy cow they're the progeny of a mm -hmm. dairy cow but with a probably with beef genetics because we use beef beef bulls, beef breed bulls into in cross with dairy cow, which almost gives the perfect... Wouldn't we eat that before? Why? What was the differentiator? That would be, I think it would always have been in the meats. Those animals would always and still will go into the meat supply chain, but they wouldn't go in as prime. They wouldn't be the sort of top-end steaks or the, the Aberdeen Angus stuff you would see on a butcher's counter or on a supermarket counter is the prime steak. But in terms of processing meat that goes into... So birth, why, though? How come? Um, the, it is, it's, very, it's challenging because the genetics of a dairy cow are to... Is that they are, they've been bred and they've been improved to, 
the priorities for them to, those cows to give milk so they're not big meaty chunks you talk about the shape or the specification of a beef animal the beef animal needs to be big back end a chunky sort of heavy barrel looking kind of beef animal that's what you get from a hereford or an Aberdeen angus or a galloway or any of those beef breeds whereas a dairy cow in more narrow frame it's leggy you think about a holstein frisian or a jersey cow they're tall and leggy and narrow but they're there to they give milk so they don't traditionally make the sort of shape of beef animal that a butcher or the, the mass market would look for no so they are devalued often you know virtually all the time at the point that they go into the market for meat doesn't mean that the actual quality of the meat to eat in terms of nutrition or flavor or texture is any less than but it's just that they're not a big the yield of meat on them is less and for a butcher or a processor economically no they'll want a beef breed animal not a dairy animal okay right so how so in the last four years how has the green butcher now grown and developed what direction is it taking you on or are you taking it on sure so as i say we started off with quite a focus on the sort of dairy story in the field we didn't even have premises then but in early 2020 just after covid outbreak the timing for us was that we took on a unit premises in Twickenham where Leah obviously you've been to you come in to get your briskets yeah. and your produce for your business and we have quite a good capacity here we have plenty of fridge space and stuff so we basically become a full service retail butcher and wholesale butcher but wholesale in terms of we supply we don't really we don't supply into trade or into restaurants really we do a few like say St John and we've got a couple but we have a shop here we have a retail shop where we are we have a, you know, a nucleus of loyal, supporting nucleus of customers in this sort of Twickenham, Richmond, Teddington sort of area. And we supply one of the big, our big partner, our big sort of B2B customer is Abel & Cole. So Abel & Cole are a national scale, organic, home delivery, mini supermarket. And we started a supply relationship with them in autumn of 21, just before Farm Drop went down, which was fortunate because we were able to move the volume and the supply into, into Abel and Cole. And we've built that over the last 18 months of them and they've been an incredible supportive partner. They're a great company to work with. This is all genuine and a significant proportion of our output each week goes to Abel and Cole, which means we can get this pasture for life organic produce into households anywhere in the UK. That is a valuable achievement for pasture for life as an organization as well to see their produce now on, out on a national distributor. So yeah. So we supply Blancol. We also supply to Planet Organic, who are, again, an organic London retailer. Obviously, they sell more than just fresh food. And that's an interesting business that's undergoing some sort of strategic change and but some growth now. And we are hopefully well-placed with them. And they've again, they've, we've had very good success with them. We've performed well. But at the core of what we are trying to do, which is the exciting part of the business, is to grow our direct customer relationships in this side of London. We've chosen not to go down the sort of online meat box courier delivery type route. We haven't done that. It's, it's expensive, it's complex, it's risky, it's wrought with problems. So we feel like we've got more than a, enough opportunity in our sort of local community to, to continue to grow the Green Butcher, raise awareness, tell the story, and get this produce to people who want it. People who we talk about, people who place an importance on where their food comes from, how it's produced. We're here to serve our local community. Yeah. 
and fulfill that urgent job that needs to be done. The job is, again, when I got started, when the career change happened and I started this whole project five years ago, the climate change conversation and the sort of anti-meat lobby was only has was barely getting started. It's really exploded in the last two or three years. So we to a degree in the right place at the right time. And with Pasture for Life as an organization, they've been I mean I think they were founded about twelve years ago by a small group of farmers in the Cotswolds, but we still talk about them being ahead of their time. They were championing and promoting the virtues of this way of farming since day one. Not many people were listening, but now it's starting to get some attention. And it's in the national papers. In most weeks, there's our schools about, and obviously the anti-meat, should we be eating meat, eat less, eat better, all these slogans mean that we are, and we're in the thick of it. So we do have an opportunity to play an important role in that. But the urgent job to be done is that these farmers, they need their produce recognised, they need the providence recognised and the work for what they're doing. And the actual quality of the food they're producing is so exceptionally unique and so Absolutely. different to everything else. that. Yes it's a waste not to have it <laughs> recognized for what yeah. it is because it will go into the food the meat chain it'll just get lost into the void that is the industrial meat market so that's the job to be done and obviously if we're gonna we're not professing to be masters of nature or think we have all the answers to climate change of course we don't but the, yeah, clearly there's an urgent job to be done to stop any more if you like degradation of farm farmland and soil fertility that's crucial i think there's an interesting question now about Growing a small business, a small farm, if we're going back to these slower methods of production, respecting nature, respecting ecosystems, yes, it's better for the environment, the soil, our health, the cattle's happier, all of that, 100%. But in terms of expectations, volume, and sustainability for the life of the farmers as well, and small businesses like yours. How does it work? No, it's a good question. It's a deep question, yeah. People, again, there's another slogan out there is that organic won't feed the world or 100% or grass-fed beef can't feed the world on grass-fed beef. And that's probably true. Is it a sustainable farming system? Yes, it's being proven to be, for most farmers who are transitioning to this way of farming, it's a big mindset change. It's a farming system which effectively doesn't rely on any external inputs so the farmer isn't at the mercy of the commodity market for grain prices or you know, the commodity market for agricultural products or chemicals so it is being proven to be a viable way to farm in terms of a mixed livestock system how scalable is it can it feed could we feed the whole of the uk on grass-fed beef it's an extensive system as opposed to intensive so extensive means it obviously does require quite a lot of land we is have it, the land yeah I mean, the uk is 70 percent, roughly 70 percent of the land of the uk landscape is grass pasture land yeah and we are in a climate here where of course grass grows and we have the natural capital to, to farm this way i don't know whether it could feed i wouldn't make any claims on that but it's an extensive system it does use land is it an efficient way of producing food to have cattle and sheep taking up a lot and lots of space and rotating around grasslands. I'm not really the right person to down on that. And I don't think that the whole of the UK agricultural system is going to end up doing this pasture-based farming 10 or 20 years from now. It's highly unlikely. But we are proving, the farmers are proving that it's viable economically. You talk about the farmer and the sort of the welfare and the effect on the farmer. Yeah, I mean, it's, that is a major consideration. It's not just about the mechanical process of farming is the people that are involved in 
this field. It's intensive it's, on so many levels. It's demanding of the farmer in terms of their skill set and their commitment to it, yes. But once it works, there's a lot less stress on the farmer if he's not having to buy in. There's a lot less cost to me financially. It's you're basically you're reducing input costs and you're feeding your animals what you grow out on out on the field and understand your soil and you can grow good grass and pasture and all the different plants you need. That's a lot more sustainable long term and a lot less mm. pressure on the farmer to not have to go and buy in. Of course, the weather and all was now and we're having you know, we go from drought to extreme rains and seasons are a bit all over the place. But I think the farmers are proving that it's viable and sustainable at a certain scale. Yeah. Do you think that regenerative Organic, pasture-fed cattle farming can be carbon positive. I think all I can do there is give a couple of examples of credible, robust studies that have been done. One that's from the US called White Oak Pastures, and it's a lovely website, and it looks like an incredible project. And they did a very in-depth, thorough scientific study on their farm that proved that they were, if you like, absorbing or locking down more carbon in their soil than was being produced by their farming methods or the methane from the cows. And closer to home and much, much closer to us, certainly is that the Ethical Dairy in Scotland published last year, I think it was, again, an, an academic research project they've been running for over 20 years where one of the Scottish universities has been taking soil samples from them over 20 years. And again, it was a very robust, very rigorous study. And you know, the scientific outcome was that they had sequestered and captured more carbon on their farm over that period than had been emitted yes effectively and again slogan like carbon positive beef and stuff which is there are some case studies out there that, are, that, that seem to be proving it can be done a few questions about now focusing on you as a butcher and your mission in your business do you think that in order to highlight provenance and those incredible farming methods the quality that you offer that eating less but better meat is something that you promote it's valid. Yeah, we don't use, we don't seem to jump, we don't generally jump on trends and other people's sort of slogans. We do eat less but better. I think, look, we just want people to understand that eating meat, eating red meat, we believe is beneficial full stop. Even if you're eating, not everyone has access to 100% grass for meat, organic meat, and there obviously is a price point that, you know, is relevant here. But we are trying to make it accessible and affordable. That was a founding sort of um, belief. That was a founding principle of Pasture for Life as a movement was to make these foods accessible and affordable. But we would just urge <laughs> people to think about, I think the benefits of eating red meat and dairy certainly outweigh the negative. I'll get into my, again, these are just my opinions, but in terms of young people or growing children, or I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't even consider not feeding our children meat and dairy. But, if you are only going to eat meat, yeah, if the budget and the cost and that one, it's pretty, yeah, it's obviously going to be better to eat less meat than better meat if within your, you know, in terms of if you're talking about from a financial sort of budget point of view. It's a tricky one. We don't preach, I don't give out prescriptive advice. We're not trying to, we're not militant about any of this stuff. We have plenty of vegan customers who buy for their families and yeah, it's an emotive subject. We're just promoting what we do. On a lighter note, so what's your favorite meat and cut of meat? If we're talking about beef and things like beef steak, I like the really, I like things like onglet and the chuck, the chuck eye steaks. I think they're just great. They are great value. You get a lot of bang for your buck with those. A lot of nutrition and things like onglet. That's a great steak. Uh, pork and lamb are slow cook cuts. I like the sort of, yeah, 
shoulders. And, 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 I can uh, tell you have the best brisket. <laughs> the best, yeah, I mean, it's fat. It's the flavour, isn't it? In those, it's, I know it's Absolutely just the depth incredible. of flavour and the fat. And, um, the fat, it's, it's just, just the yeah, fat it's, even. It's, it's the colour of it. It's the purity. And so I wouldn't recommend drinking it every day, but it's it's... There's more. Some people say there's more nutrition in the fat than there is in the meat. But that's the grass-fed. That's from 100% grass-fed. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's a bit of a ride for me to come and pick up my brisket, I really enjoy coming over. And I really love your butchery. It's it's a great space. It's lovely to see it. I really want to try the classes some, at some point. And I've missed, but I hope to come to some of the incredible events that you organize in the courtyard that's in front of the... The butchery. Would you like to tell us more about that? Yeah, when we took this premises, it's a lot, as you know, sort of small industrial sort of complex. Complex. Yeah. Complex. Yeah. There's the Twickenham Brewery is opposite. I'm looking at in there now. It's Twickenham Brewery. So there is a bit. You know, there is. You've got a good. You know, some good sort of synergy there. Some good. A good partnership we do with the, the barbecues. But we've, as they from coming to our shop, we've we're quite lucky with the layout. But what we've done, the shop is like a window into our butchery, isn't it? So you come in, and we've there's a big opening in the back wall where you can see through into the to our butchery and we've got these big wood blocks and the guys are working away we're a whole we're a whole animal whole carcass butchery which we haven't really talked about tonight but but uh, so that's the uniqueness of what we do because you can see a working butchery happening and it's all open source it's all transparent it's all completely there see so it's that's unique which is exciting and i think our customers really enjoy that in terms of events yeah i mean since day one we are we have the space here and because of the brewery opposite and we're within a 10 15 minute walk of Harlequins Rugby Stadium and also then the main England stadium with the game starting this Saturday for Six Nations. So we've always done a barbecue here on match days, pre-match, in collaboration with the brewery. They open their brewery, you know, the bar, the brewery tap there. We have a big green egg barbecue and other sort of live wood-fired barbecues and we cook up this Saturday. We'll do steak, we'll do things like the Bavec steak and the flat iron steak with Jimmy Churi from the guys, at the local Jimmy guys in Richmond and some borrowable sausages and stuff. Yeah, that's fine. It's a pre-match Thing, thing it goes obviously beer and barbecue goes obviously it's a good matchup it's good fun uh it brings people in it's a great vibe and then we've also started doing butchery classes or evening something we've always wanted to do since day one but obviously with the sort of situation with covid we weren't allowed to get that intimate but now we have run these events we have one tomorrow night which is fully booked out we have one next wednesday which is fully booked and we are trying to run in a couple of times a month where we again bring people in and we show them the sort of uniqueness of what we do, which is really around the whole carcass, whole animal, nose to tail butchery. And so they get an insight into that, they get hands on with that. And then again, I cook a barbecue. We have a big feast of a meal. It's a great, it's a great fun night. It's sociable. It's just, it's a, it's good fun. It's also just a really good night out and you get to see something a bit different. So it's great. And we are, we are embedding ourselves, if you like, in our local community. And that's where it's that's so gonna, important. Of course it is. And yeah, it is. It's very real. It's very authentic. It's very real what we're doing. And we are we are building real relationships with local people and local businesses. And that's, yeah. And so that gives us a lot of, you know, a lot of motivation and sort of optimism for the future. We are unique in that we are a whole animal butchery, but that's also a product of the way we've set up our relationships with farms from the start. So we effectively built this concept and this business in partnership with the farms, with Horton House Farm and with the Ethical Dairy. So it was never even a question of us saying to these guys, we'll buy the beef off you, but we only want the steaks and you sort out the rest of it. We had to take the whole animal from day one. It's just, there's no other way to do it. So that is challenging in terms of a butchery. It's why we need a variety of channels and customers for the whole animal, which is where you know, Abel and Cole will help take. If we have a surplus of mints, for example, they they will they can take it. We have outlets for the bones. Our bones go to the borough broth because we make organic broth. Uh, 
uh, fats as well. We have restaurants like St. John who will take the organs and the off oil off us, which is again crucial. We can't afford not to value these parts. And it's also a part of the respect and the actual principle of an animal being slaughtered for meat. So it's, and it also means we have very highly skilled butchers because we are cutting, we are butchering whole animals every day. It's really cool. It's really cool. And so the customers can see that when they come in the shop and they come to the butcher evenings. But it's again, it's a, it's a unique way of doing it. But we are trying to break in new ground a little bit with that sort of, on that side. Of it. Any projects coming up for you? We are. It's a good. <laughs> I mean, when that's the business owner, I yeah, I'm constantly thinking what's what's next. What could we do? What's within our means? And what could we do within our means? I we we just. We're in a very densely urban area here, community here. So I think that really the priority this year has to be just to continue to raise. I don't know, there's going to be, there's going to be plenty of people I don't even know we exist. There's going to be plenty of people. And it's not about pushing the marketing in their face. It's about, we believe if a lot of people realise they could get this, they could buy this produce, source this produce in their local community, within their local area, they'd, be, they'd come and see us. So I think really we have to continue just to spread the word and make people aware that we're here because a lot of people this is they are looking for this they are looking especially you you and you travel from north london it's because you don't come because it's because of you don't come to us because of price or because of even because of me you come here because of the provenance and the quality of what we're offering absolutely yeah and it's funny because you said that earlier but that's exactly how i found you the same way you were asking farms what they needed and they needed an outlet it's actually how I found you because I, I went online looking for through all the pasture fed farms in the UK and I went through all of them and they were probably close to 90 or 100 and I went sure. emailed everybody and from the few that actually marketed or were open to marketing to selling their meat. Such, such a small amount. They just, yeah, yeah. We're doing three farms out of yeah. the lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they, yeah. so they were either in the north of England and too far mm. away. Mm. Or the closer ones just led me to you and they said, you just contact this guy and this is how. Oh, really? Did they actually yeah. say to you? Oh, really? Oh, really? But that's how I found you. Oh, okay. Was... So it's actually through I, pasture I went through life. farms. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's actually brilliant. That's a great sort of endorsement also of the community that they would, if you like, signpost and yeah. help you find. Because yes, very few part of life farms are set up or have the means to sell or butcher their meat and sell it. No, they're still farmers. Most farmers, they sell live animals to a yeah and at the farm gate and that's, that's as far as it goes that's great it's great that they would yeah and there's, and there's only there's two or three of us as businesses around london doing this we all have our differences you're all doing it a different way but of course yeah it's still a, it's difficult to find it yeah which is why you travel yeah. from north london yeah. no absolutely yeah. all right so thank you so much nick i'm going to ask you a last quirky question we ask every guest as the podcast is called digest so in food or life rhetorical question what do you or do you not digest okay i think if i keep that i keep my answer relevant to the topic today and what we're talking about pasture for life or farmers who are farming this way have done it because they farm this way because they believe it's the right thing to do so they're open-minded and they are bigger picture thinkers and they farm this way because virtually all of them for the same reason they believe it's the right way to do it for the environment for themselves as farms for the animal the welfare of the animals and my mindset was always been again i'm open-minded i'm not small-minded or petty so i guess what i struggle with in life is a sort of narrow small-minded self-interested mindset i think works it works well with us and with the farms we work with because we are open-minded we're 
supportive, we are sympathetic to each other in terms of the challenges, and we are on a journey, we believe, to, to do good in the bigger picture. I think really just open-mindedness and not driven by too much self-interest. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, Leah. That was great. great. <laughs> Thank really you great. so much for your time. This was I've really amazing. enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it. Yay. I... You chew, you choose. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, give it a like and subscribe for more delicious content to digest.